Now let's hear God's word. We're reading in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 3, verse 13, to chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 4 will be the one we're looking at really later on, but I want to start in verse 13 of chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptised by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptised, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. This is the living word of the living God. May he bless it to us. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, and he does, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. What a wonder of grace it is, isn't it, that that is true. Well, it's the reality of temptation that I want to look at tonight through the lens of the verses that we've read in Matthew chapter 4. 
where we see how Jesus himself was tempted and how he responded. And there are very vital, very precious lessons for us here if we are Christians and an awareness of the spiritual battle that we face. Temptation. (laughs) To the world around us, the whole idea is, well, just a joke, isn't it? Think of how many adverts use it. Cream cakes, naughty but nice. A few years ago, the men's deodorant which made glamorous female angels fall from heaven at his feet. Oscar Wilde's famous and cynical witticism, often seen emblazoned on t-shirts, I can resist anything except temptation. And so many mock at what they call Christian hang-ups. They cheerfully rationalise away, and it's just part, isn't it, of that, that whole process of stifling and denying the inner voice of conscience, which is so widespread today. Our scripture passage tonight tells us temptation is no joke. It sets the reality of temptation before us. It shows us how seriously we should regard it. For Jesus himself was tempted. And what an amazing truth that is when we realise who Jesus is. The Holy Son of God became a man for us, living a, a sinful life of perfect obedience to his Father. And that sinlessness included experiencing and resisting a fierce onslaught of temptation. Not just in this specific passage, but I believe throughout his earthly life. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews tells us he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted just like us. And in that amazing self-humbling of the Son of God, when he entered into human nature and human experience, he suffered the attacks of Satan, striving to cause him to sin. That's what he was doing. And the writer to Hebrews again makes a, a, a really encouraging application from that truth. He says, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted... He is able to aid those who are tempted, which is all of us. But the Saviour knows what it's like to be tempted and to overcome temptation completely. And his mercy, his love, his grace are there for us when Satan most fiercely attacks Hebrews 4.16 carries that wonderful promise that he who was tempted like us has grace to help in time of need. I want to look now at how the Lord was tempted, how he resisted and answered the tempter in just the way he has provided for us and the ongoing spiritual battle in our and every Christian life. But but first let me just deal very briefly with two wrong ideas about temptation which can be a, a real problem to some Christians. First, to confuse temptation itself with sin. And some believers agonise over this. 
I must be such a poor Christian to feel such fierce temptations, they say. In my first pastorate, when I was a young man, goes back nearly 50 years now, goodness. Um, Let's go back 50 years, time marches on. Uh, I had a lady who'd been converted just before I actually went there, and she'd had a, a, a very unchristian background, but she was truly converted. But she'd often say to me, Pastor, I must be such a poor Christian to feel so much temptation as I do. Oh no, Jesus was tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. Sin is yielding to the temptation. The old evangelist Billy Sunday put it like this. He said, temptation is the devil looking through the keyhole of our heart. Sin is opening the door to let him in. Rather more soberly, Matthew Henry said, the best of saints may be tempted to the worst of sin. Temptation itself is not a sin. It's a reality. But secondly, let no one think themselves above temptation. Occasionally, not often these days, but it used to be rather more so, one hears a Christian say something like, oh, I've won the battle, I live so near the Lord that the devil can't get in. Well, that's a yielding to temptation itself, isn't it? The temptation to the very real sin of spiritual pride. If Jesus himself was tempted, how can any Christian think themselves beyond temptation? Oh, by God's grace, we may win a battle. But the war goes on as long as we're in this life. So let me come now more directly to Matthew chapter 4. And I want to consider three things. And the first is the source of temptation. The source of temptation. Temptation is real because the tempter is real. The devil is real. He's not a myth. He's not a piece of old-fashioned superstition. He's not a mere symbol of evil. He's dreadfully real. He's a present reality in the passage that we've read. He was a present reality to Jesus. He attacked Jesus. We are told very, very clearly it was the devil that tempted him. It was the tempter that came to him. And he is real. Well, if the world laughs at the idea of temptation, how much more at the idea of a personal tempter, of Satan himself? What mockery we face, don't we, if, if we make it clear that we believe today in the real existence of the devil? Oh, he's a myth, he's a fairy story, he's a piece of medieval superstition, they say. And of course, they've got in mind a kind of pantomime demon with horns and a forked tail and hooves and all the rest of it. And sadly, there are some who call themselves Christians who have the same attitude. Not only this passage, but the whole of God's word from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 insists on the reality of Satan. And he is the source of temptation. Many of you will know the book's the Screwtape Letters, which C.S. Lewis wrote during the Second World War. And in that, one of the things he says is that the devil's, one of the devil's greatest triumphs in the then 20th century is that he stopped people from believing he was real. 
and therefore much more vulnerable to his attacks. Remember what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6. Those great verses that say, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. Spiritual warfare against a real, powerful, vicious, malicious enemy. But here's the promise that there is a wonderful armor that God has provided for every believer. And we must put it on. That you may be able, says Paul, to stand against the wiles of the devil. Armour of proof, they used to say. Armour that would keep the enemy out. But Christian, we've got to wear it. We've got to put it on. We must be constantly on our guard against the devil. Peter in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 8, says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith. Believer, Satan hates you. Christian, Satan hates you because Christ's redeeming death has delivered you from his clutches, but he will attack you whenever and however he can. And we must all be on our guard, our spiritual guard. Jesus exhorts his disciples, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Not lest you be tempted, they will be tempted. Lest you give way to the temptation, lest you enter into it. Watch and pray. See Satan's attacks for what they are. Outward attack, yes, opposition, mockery, persecution... But how much more believers suffer from inward attacks? What do I mean by that? Those doubts and fears that come seemingly out of nowhere sometimes to assail our minds, to fill them with doubts. Those thoughts and desires that are contrary to God's way and will for us and so often seem to stir within us out of the blue, as we say. Seeking to make us disobedient to God. See them for what they are. This is not some kind of psychological thing. This is what Paul calls Satan's fiery darts there in Ephesians chapter 6. Recognize them for what they are and recognize them for where they come from. There's truth, isn't there, in the old human saying that, that to know your enemy is half the battle. Recognize them for what they are. And never doubt the source of temptation. And realise that fierce attacks may come after a time of particular blessing. In a sense, can't we say that was exactly like that for Jesus here? That's why I read those verses from the end of chapter 3. 
he has been baptized and in that baptism the voice of his father from heaven has spoke to affirm him this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and the Holy Spirit visibly in the form of a dove has descended upon him it must have been a wonderful moment of affirmation for Jesus if I could say it reverently he must have been on a real spiritual high as he came out of those waters and went to begin his ministry and just then just then chapter 4 verse 1 Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil now don't miss that he was led up by the spirit into the wilderness he was in the very place of God's appointing he was where the Holy Spirit had led him and the tempter came at him now yes of course we, we can foolishly put ourselves in the way of temptation we can flirt as it were with things that we should flee American of the mid 20th century writer a man called Vance Havner who is what he's been called a master of the Christian one liner and one of those one-liners is this. If you don't want to trade with the devil, stay out of his shops. How many applications that has, both literal and metaphorical, doesn't it? We can put ourselves in the way of temptation. But equally, as for Jesus here, we may be seeking to walk in obedience. We may be in the very place of God's will for us and just then Satan attacks because he will always try to spoil our blessings if he can recognize that and expect those attacks and be ready for them the source of temptation but secondly we need to be aware that we recognize here the subtlety of temptation the subtlety of temptation. Satan's attacks are not a kind of scattergun approach. They're, they're targeted. What is a strong temptation for one Christian may have no appeal whatever for another. And in the old phrase, Satan doesn't waste his powder. If we look as we're going to at these three recorded temptations, they are carefully targeted to Christ's true humanity and natural human feelings. And though he found no vulnerable spot in the Lord, I think we see here that he knew where it might be found if it was possible. I'll explain that in a moment. Well, with us, he knows all too well our all too real vulnerabilities, our weaknesses. The old Puritan Thomas Watson, in the, the rather now quaint manner of his day, he said, Satan never sets a dish before a man that he will not want to taste. He offers what our human nature finds desirable, enticing, attractive. Wasn't that how he tempted Eve at the very beginning? So as we look at these three temptations, these three approaches to Jesus, how they show the subtlety of Satan's attacks. They are focused on the Lord's situation and what lies before him. And although they are indeed specific to him, they do speak to us as well. 
So verse 3. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread, says the tempter. Actually, it's a double temptation, isn't it? Consider the very first word, if. If you are the son of God. Straight from the baptism, from the voice of heaven, Satan seeks to raise doubt in the very mind of Jesus as to whether it was real. Can it be true? You imagined it. How can you be the son of God? You're a village carpenter's son. If, if, if. And how often Satan tries to put doubts in our minds, doesn't he? Doubts about the reality of our faith, our spiritual experience, even about God himself. Didn't you just imagine it? Wasn't it all an emotional experience? Weren't you just caught up with people all around you and carried along? Oh, dear friends, don't let Satan attack your assurance and make you doubt. Lay hold of God's word. Lay hold of its promises. Lay hold of the Saviour. Satan wants to play with your mind. Don't let him. Look to the Lord. But, but what of this actual temptation? Command these stones to become bread. Why in fact is it a temptation? Have you ever wondered that? Why would it be a sin? After all, very soon Jesus will feed 5,000 plus from only five small loaves and two fishes. Feeding the multitude by that same divine power he'd used in creation itself. For he is the eternal word of God, says John chapter 1, without whom nothing was made that was made. He was going to do that to feed the 5,000. Why would it be wrong then to do what Satan suggests here? To turn the stones to bread to feed himself. He's starving. He's fasted for 40 days. They say he would be at the very, very limit of human endurance. And so often it's the particular circumstance that we're in that make a particular temptation hard to resist. It seems to offer just what we need at that moment. But why? Why would it be wrong to turn the stones to bread? Well, consider this. How often would he teach his disciples and us in his word to trust God for his provision? As a man among men, would Jesus then do other than he teaches his followers to do? The temptation surely is to doubt God's provision and Rely on his own unique resources. And that he will not do. But we're tempted to do that sometimes, aren't we? To doubt God's provision, to run around in circles, if you like, to try every human means and not look to the Lord as we should. Move on to the second temptation. I'm coming back to the answer to temptation as our final and third point. The second temptation, verses 5 to 6. The devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple. Some argue it was a vision. We don't know. It doesn't matter. The, 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 the importance is not whether it was a vision or whether it was a physical reality, but what the temptation was. He said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, 
For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan quotes scripture. And the quotation itself is accurate, completely accurate. It's from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. But what Satan does is to wrench those verses out of their context and misapply them. The psalm expresses utter trust in God. The way that God will keep his people in his care and they must look to him. There's nothing like doing something like Satan suggests here. God's word can be misapplied, it can be perverted. Many unbelieving opponents of Christianity do that, don't they? They, they rip a text out of its context and suggest that it's inconsistent with another text when they know nothing whatever about the Bible. But false teachers, more seriously, past and present, have perverted scripture for their own ends. And what the devil does here is to take a verse about absolute trust in God and say to Jesus, go on, demonstrate that you believe it. Throw yourself down and trust God to catch you up before you hit the ground. What an utter misapplication of God's promise that would be. And yet, you know, we may be tempted to misapply faith in ways that are not honouring to God. Oh, whatever I do, God will look after me, he's promised. No, not if I do what is foolish. Not if I do what is disobedient. Not if I do what is irresponsible. That's not faith. It's presumption. In the church I pastored in the Midlands a while ago now, I had a senior deacon, lovely godly man, who in a moment of justified exasperation said to one of his relatives, now you know what the Bible says. It says, trust in the Lord and do good, not trust in the Lord and act daft. We may be tempted to misuse faith in ways that are not honouring to God. How could this act have been that if Jesus had done it? But he wasn't taken in for a moment. Nor should we be. God's promises are not open sesames for self-indulgence or self-will. They speak to a life of faith which wants to please God and glorify him. Oh God, grant us a faith like that. If that's our desire, it will enable us to see temptation for what it is. Third temptation. Verse 8, verse 9. The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Does that seem crude? Do you say, how could Jesus possibly be tempted by that? We could easily see that temptation for what it was. I believe this is actually the most subtle of all three. 
It reaches out to the Lord's true human nature and awareness. That he knew the suffering that was ahead of him. He knew about the cross. Instinctively as humanity shrank from it as it would in Gethsemane. Oh my father if it's possible take this cup from me. Father it's too much. And here at the very beginning of his ministry, the devil comes to him and says, you don't need to go that way. Avoid the suffering. Avoid the cross. Just just give me a bit of compromise. And I'll give you the world. That's what the temptation is. Just listen to me. You don't need to suffer. Just listen to me. You recognize that temptation, Christian? No need to suffer for your faith. Just, just fit in with the world around you. Just, just compromise a little. Oh, oh, just keep quiet. Just keep quiet when you're in non-Christian company. Just keep your head down. Don't draw attention to yourself. Avoid all the mockery and marginalization that you fear. That voice comes all too often, doesn't it? Recognize it for what it is. Just begin to compromise, just a little compromise. And you're on a slippery slope. Don't actually speak against what they do. Becomes just join in. Don't be too in your face, in their face with your witness. Becomes don't witness at all. So the tempter seeks to work. The subtlety of temptation. But thank God we are clearly shown here the answer to temptation. The answer to temptation. We we need to look at this fairly briefly now, but in a way it's the most precious lesson this passage has to teach us. How did the Lord Jesus Answer and resist the tempter. You know, he could have swept him from him by his own divine power. He could have annihilated him in that minute had he chosen to do so. But he was being tempted just like us. And he used only the weapon he provides for us. I referred a moment ago to Paul's words in Ephesians 6 where he speaks of the armour that God provides for the spiritual warfare and the items of that armour for our defence, you know, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. But there's one weapon, isn't there? One weapon for us to use to attack the devil, to resist temptation. Ephesians 6, 17, oh goodness knows, best part of 70 years ago, I learned that in Sunday school, almost by rote. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And that is exactly what Jesus does here. How does he answer the devil? How does he resist the temptation? Verse 4, it is written. Verse 7, It is written again. Verse 10, away with you, Satan, for it is written. God's word says. 
very briefly, to the temptation to make bread to feed himself. Jesus quotes, and the answers Jesus quotes are all from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Israel is in the wilderness and they're grumbling and complaining even about God's marvellous provision of the manna. They got fed up with manna and they're grumbling about it. Moses says, your concern must not be with bread of any kind, but with the God who gives it and with every word from his mouth. Lay hold of God's word, trust him. To the temptation to misuse faith and presume upon God, Jesus quotes again from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16. Moses rebuking Israel again for grumbling and doubting and he warns them, you must not put God to the test. That's what it means, you must not tempt God. Jesus isn't saying you mustn't tempt me, Satan, he's quoting that to tempt God or to try God's patience by a lack of faith, by constant complaining, you must not do that by presumptuous attitudes. Not to treat God as if he was there, as it were, to satisfy our desires and serve them, but to seek rather to serve him and honour him. And then to the temptation to compromise, to avoid God's way, to seek an easier one. Again from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13. Israel are reminded there that they've come out of Egypt where they had all the false gods of Egypt. And they're going into Canaan where again many false gods are worshipped by the people around them. But they must worship and serve only God. The true and living God, the God who has redeemed them, who has delivered them from Egypt. There must be no compromise. Worship and obedience belong to God alone, who alone is worthy to receive it. It is written. God's word says as Jesus wields that weapon, that sword of the spirit that is given to us. Well, we're told in verse 11, the devil left him. Do we use the weapon? How we need to be firmly grounded in this book. To know it, to read it, to study it, to pray over it, to gladly receive true ministry of the word, to value opportunity for Bible study. What appetite do we have for God's word? Oh, Christian, we should fill our hearts and minds with it. What does the psalmist say? Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, verse 11. And remember what James says, you must be doers of the word and not hearers only. Oh, that we, dear friends, may lay hold of the word of God when the tempter attacks us. It's by this means that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. As James again promises in chapter 4, verse 7. The reality of temptation. Its source. Its subtlety. 
But praise God, the answer to it. The answer he has given us, his own living word. And Jesus, who was tempted just like us, can and does sympathise with us in the battle and aid us by his grace. Just a word of caution. Matthew's account simply says in verse 11, then the devil left him. But it was only for a while. Luke's parallel account is quite specific. He left him until an opportune time. Until there was an appropriate time in Satan's mind to attack him and tempt him again. Satan would come again, even to Jesus. He comes to us and at us again and again and again, as long as we are in this life. But let me close again with those words from Hebrews 4 that I've quoted from verse 15 and verse 16. Lay hold of these. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The grace that is always there, Christian, for us. Amen.